Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast, hosted by Clay Seidenbender. On today's show, I talk to Dr. Bruce A. Little, who is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he served as full-time faculty between 2001 and 2018. He also serves as the director of the Francis A. Schaeffer Collection and coordinator of the Francis Schaeffer Society, both at Southeastern. Since 1995, Dr. Little has lectured in universities in various other venues in America, Central and Eastern Europe, and Africa on Christian philosophy, Christian faith, and culture, as well as the problem of evil. He is author of several books, including A Creation Order, The Odyssey, God and Gratitude is Evil, and God, Why This Evil. He's also editor of two books, Francis A. Schaeffer, A Mind and Heart for God, and Defending the Faith, Engaging in the Culture, Essays Honoring L. Rush Bush. Today I talk with Dr. Little about Francis Schaeffer's view of inerrancy. Francis Schaeffer was an evangelical theologian, philosopher, apologist, and Presbyterian pastor who lived from 1912 to 1984. In 1955, he and his wife Edith founded the Labrie Fellowship in the Swiss Alps. The community was known as a place for university students to get honest answers to their deepest questions. Schaeffer published a number of books, including The God Who Is There, True Spirituality, and The Great Evangelical Disaster. For more information about Schaefer, I will be linking articles and books in the show notes. Now, on to the show. One quick thing before we begin, though. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that the audio for my interview is a bit muffled, so I apologize in advance. But hopefully you're able to listen past that. The quality of the content is still great. So, again, here's the interview. Enjoy the show. All right, Bruce, thank you for joining me today. I just wanted to first ask uh, a little bit about your background, um, where you taught um, and what books you've written or articles you've written. You don't need to give the whole bibliography, of course, but um, just a little background on yourself. Yes, I've taught. Well, first I would say that I did serve as a pastor for some number of years. So I was teaching and pastoring and then around 2000 i just decided to do teaching full-time and that's when i was teaching at southeastern baptist theological seminary in wake forest north carolina um, but i've done teaching in other seminaries in the united states um, teaching in seminaries in austria hungary um, as well as I've served as a visiting professor at Ostrog University in Ostrog, um, Ukraine. Uh, so that kind of tells you what my has been. As for books, I've, you know, my main book was uh, on the problem of evil. I've written two books on the problem of evil, numerous articles. Uh, I've written four or five books um, with a Russian philosopher in uh, Ukraine. Uh, they're all in Russian. I had them translated, of course, uh, in, into Russian. Um, and one book uh, was used uh, in uh, one of the courses that they taught at the university, which was a major university at the time, in Simferopol, uh, Ukraine. Uh, that is down in the Crimean Peninsula, which is now not Ukraine, but it's now Russia, or part of Russia, I should say. Done debates, university campuses, debating atheists, doing presentations at different uh, universities, conferences, and secular universities, such as Duke uh, University. Great, thank you. That uh, really gives us a setup of who you are and uh, what your background is. And um, 
how next I want to ask what uh, how your interest in Francis Schaeffer came about. When I became a Christian in um, when I was 20 years old, I and this is not a criticism of this group, but I was in uh, northern uh, in New England, state of Maine. And most of these people were wonderful people, but they did tend to be somewhat legalistic and told me that um, you, you can't study philosophy. Uh, that has, you have no place in philosophy as a Christian. But I had all these questions and I had a philosophical bent at the time. So I thought, well, then I can't ask any questions. I just have to believe. But that was my point. That was my point. Precisely, what, what am I to believe and why should I believe it? Uh, it was then not till some time later that uh, I came, uh, I was, came the book, uh, The God Was There. Now, I must say that I was introduced to Schaefer earlier than that, but it was a very, a very, uh, altered view of Schaeffer as I began, began to learn more about what Schaeffer was about. My first introduction were people who use Schaeffer to, to package an antinomian view of Christianity, which of course that would not have been Schaeffer. Um, but then in, uh, I'm, I'm studying and I come across the God who is there. I believe that was the, that was the first book that I read. At some point there, um, Schaeffer makes this point uh, not not precisely these words, I'm sure, he, but it was the notion uh, Christians should not leave their minds at the door when they go to church um, and that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to be a Christian. Well, honestly, I felt I'd been saved all over again. And now I had permission to, <laughs> to, to not that I was an intellectual, but I did have questions that were of an intellectual nature. And I thought, now I can pursue it. So that was my introduction to Schaefer and why over the years, he's had such a profound influence on me because much of my trajectory from that point on was simply the outworking of uh, what Schaefer had written um, in, uh, in that book. And I'm ever grateful uh, for that. Um, so at that point, I started reading Schaefer, studying Schaefer. And then in, I'm not sure precisely when it was, 2000, I don't know, maybe 2010, 2011, I was the uh, director of the uh, L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And that's when I organized the first uh, conference ever done on Schaefer himself. There had been many conferences done on Lebris, but nothing on Schaefer himself. Well, that introduced me to the family, or at least some of the family, I should say. And since then, of course, I've remained friends with them. And I've gained a lot of knowledge about Schaefer from talking with them, and I interviewed maybe 30 people as a part of an oral history project in Europe and here in the United States, people who had studied with Schaefer, knew Schaefer personally, and that has also added to my appreciation for the work that, uh, that Schaefer did. Well, it does sound like Schaefer has left an indelible mark on, on you and your life. And um, you did, or you have written, um, extensively on him uh and i wanted to ask as a someone who's um thought about his writings and his work um what his view of inerrancy is you wrote a blog post on june 24th of this year um i wanted to get your extensive thoughts on what exactly his thoughts were <laughs> Well, I hope to do my best to represent what Schaefer did believe. So I'll try to be very close in my words to correspond to what Schaefer himself said. Um, 
For Schaefer, inerrancy meant the full authority of scripture and claimed that that would eventually affect what it means to be a Christian theologically and how that we would live in the full spectrum of, uh, of human life. And he thought that unless the Bible is without error, not only when it speaks about salvif salvific matters, but also when it speaks of history in the cosmos. Because he said without that, we have no foundation for answering questions concerning the existence of the universe or uh, its form and uniqueness of man. Now, this is something that's very early on evident in Schaefer's life, uh, his commitment to inerrancy. And that is in 1937, uh, Schaefer had been attending Westminster Theological Seminary. And in 1937, after one year, I think it is, at Westminster, he makes an application to a new seminary, one that was just starting up called Faith Seminary. It was headed by our lad uh, uh, Harris. And in the letter, the handwritten letter, which I've seen, uh, he writes to our lad Harris and says he is so excited about this, uh, this new seminary that is starting up. He said, what I'm impressed with, and at least what you're saying, is that you have a, a deep commitment to, uh, to scholarship. You promote a deep spiritual life. You have a strong emphasis, he said, on evangelism. You have a pre-mill position. And then he says, a militant defense of God's word that allows no compromise. Now, when he uses the militant word, we must understand that that would be very much, uh, he didn't mean fighting as we might think of it today, but that was the language that would have been used to say a, 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 a no compromising, a, a solid stand, as it were. So that's in 1937. So if you see that very early on in, in Schaefer, um, later he, he writes, uh, just before he's going to uh, Europe, uh, to take on his, this new ministry as he's been commissioned by the Presbyterian Mission. He writes an article, it's called uh, The New Modernism. And he, he actually visits with a couple of his friends, uh, Karl Barth. And in this article, this, this article was then picked up and uh, published in the Baptist Bulletin in 1951. And they reprinted it uh, because he had given this, this speech at the Conference on the International Council of Christian Churches, which you may know was an organization of Carl McIntyre. And the Baptist Press, in the article written by a man by the name of David Roach in October 30th, in 2014, he said that Francis Schaeffer uh, believed that the work, excuse me, that the work of Francis Schaeffer was indispensable to the debate that was going on within the Southern Baptist Convention. As you remember at that time, uh, in the 1980s later, there's a battle going on called the, you know, the uh, uh, Baptist resurgence, or conservative resurgence. And so he's very, he watches this very carefully from, um, from a, a distance somewhat. But uh, I, according to that article, and I have, I also have uh, corroborating evidence, he would call Paige Patterson. And I don't know how many times he called Paige, but I know he did call Paige Patterson. And one of the calls was around Christmas time. And according to uh, David Roach, uh, he calls Patterson and he says, um, you're not growing weary and well-doing, are you? <laughs> and uh, and uh, Patterson says, well, uh, no, no, Dr. Schaefer, I'm under fire, but I'm doing fine. So we know that, so here we are in the early uh, mid eighties, we once again see Schaefer's very much interested in what's going on in the Baptist conservative resurgence because it was a fight for the inerrancy of the text. So that kind of gives you um, some idea of this thing. This idea of inerrancy was 
fundamental to everything that Schaefer did. In 1982, he delivers a speech at a plenary session uh, of the Congress on the Bible, which was held in San Diego. And the title of his message, now this is 82, two years before he dies. Uh, he, the title of it is, What Difference Does Inerrancy Make? And you can just imagine Schaefer's conclusion was, well, it matters everything, he said. And in this, in this, um, uh, in this speech, he mentions that uh, he had written uh, to the a group that at the time was starting to put forth a call for the Council on Biblical Inerrancy. This is now the council that is known as the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, Schaefer signed that. But in the mailing in which he's encouraging people to support this conference, uh, Schaefer writes and says, unless the Bible is without error, not only when it speaks of salvation matters, but also when it speaks of history and the cosmos, we have no foundation, he said, for answering questions concerning the existence of the universe, its form, and the uniqueness of man, nor do we have any moral absolutes or certainty of salvation. And he said, the next generation of Christians will have nothing on which to stand if we give up inerrancy. That's pretty strong. <laughs> and that's in just two years uh, before, before we, he dies. And in that same speech, he says, why, the, it's an overwhelming difference at the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, as the in absolute word of God. He said, if you don't have that, he said, you're going to be caught in the ever-changing fallen cultures that are around us. And he, he warned that those who do not have a strong view of inerrancy, what he would call the high view, he said, they are at the mercy of a fallen and changing culture. And scripture will be, con will be conformed, he says, to the changing world spirit of that day instead of having their solid authority upon which to judge or to resist the views and values of a changing, shifting world spirit. Um, one would like to say, <laughs> myself anyway, because I'm in so much in agreement with him, um, is that this is such a crucial message, I believe, for this day and age. Um, he thinks that this just makes, this would make all the difference in the world. So that's kind of, <laughs> I'm just trying to show that Schaefer starts very early in his Christian life and all the way through we see that even up to his, you know, two years before his death, what is base, what is so fundamental to Schaefer is the inerrancy of scripture. Let that go, and you have nothing to stand on. It, do, it does uh, show how much of a, a mark um, that the scriptures have on his life and on his ministry. Um, and now in the same blog post that I mentioned earlier, you write, uh, for Schaefer, the lordship of Christ was synonymous with what he called true spirituality, or the Christian life, which rested on God's objective and authoritative word for the Christian. However, the Lordship of Christ did not stand on its own. Without the inerrant scriptures, it had nothing on which to make any claim about Christ. Why is the Lordship of Christ tied to the inerrancy of scripture for Schaefer? Well, the simple answer is that if the Bible, the, the Lord, how do we know anything about the Lordship of Christ? That is, what does it mean? How is it accomplished? That sort of thing. Well, we would have no information about that if we didn't have the scriptures. But if we think the scriptures, well, some of it is true and some of it isn't true, we don't really know which part we should say is true and which part we say is not true. So he felt if it wasn't inerrant, then you, you, were, left, um, you were left untethered. Uh, you, could, you had no assurance that this is what the Lordship of Christ meant. Not only what it meant, but how was it be possible in somebody's, in, in, in somebody's life? Um, and and this, is, this is very interesting because, well, at least I find it interesting. Uh, this, is, 
that in 1951, you may know about Schaefer's struggle, his kind of a spiritual crisis that starts in, in 19, uh, it starts in the early part of 1951. And there's a great story, not, which I will not go into, but he does attend a conference and, uh, in April. And he is, he, he's just said, this is what we, this is what I've been looking for. But he doesn't say, well, I'm just going to repeat what other people are saying. He then goes into this real, I would say it's a difficult time for Schaefer, more to the end of the, of the 1951, in which, you know, he talks about walking back and forth in the hay mow when it's uh, raining and out on the mountains, thinking and praying and saying, and why was he doing this? Well, he said that he had realized that there was a, a disparity between what Jesus commanded and the daily experience of Christians, that there was a lack of the understanding of how the finished work of Christ uh, and its implications for our Christian life. Now, if the Bible wasn't wholly true, then one could not know which parts were true, which parts were not true. So inerrancy gave that, uh, which gave that kind of an assurance. And when he gives the Wheaton Lectures in 1965, uh, this is uh, this is kind of when Schaefer gets introduced to uh, beyond the mountains <laughs> in Switzerland, and uh, in the lecture he says, "So if I want reality in my spiritual life," he said, "Now I'm thinking existentially. Uh, in my moment by moment, if I really want that," he said, "that it must be rooted in more than a passing experience." He said, "It must be rooted in truth, and where would one find truth?" in the inerrant word of God. And that was essential to, the, to, to the, the Christian life. And so he says that all throughout my life, he said that the unifying common theme in all my life is the Lordship of Christ in the totality of life. But I think that, uh, I think it's clear that we can argue that when he talks about the Lordship of Christ, it is entwined with and supported by his view of inerrancy. Well, we definitely see the Lordship of Christ throughout the entirety of his work and how that influences everything that he does. Um, and now I want to shift a little bit to um, his work on No Final Conflict, which I've got right here. Mm -hmm. um, he, and, and also in Genesis and Space and Time, mm. talks a lot about um, the historicity of Genesis. And I wanted to ask you, why exactly does he spend, um, when he talks about um, the Bible being without error, that he spends so much time talking about Genesis? <laughs> uh, he, he says, you know, in some place he says that uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in some sense, are the most important books in the Bible. And for, for him to, if we don't have an inerrant scripture, then we aren't going to take the first three, four chapters of Genesis as being true history. So this is, the, this is really important to look to Schaefer, that we must take those early chapters of Genesis as historically real. And there would be, the, and for this, it would then help us to understand that there is two sides of reality. There's the spirit side of reality, and there's the physical side of reality. And he thought them as being two halves of one reality. Where do we understand this? But from looking at the book of Genesis, particularly the first, I would say, the first three chapters that we have in Genesis. Um, he says, unless we are told about our beginnings, we cannot make sense of our present history. And a secular study, he says, is incapable of doing that. That is to say that the study of history and science is irrelevant or useless. He never thought that. He didn't think that that meant that, oh, we shouldn't study, you know, questions of science, etc. But he said it is the Bible and its historic reference to creation that explains to us why we are the way we are and where we had our beginnings. So the early chapters of Genesis are just absolutely important to him. 
And if they're not true, then you see we have we don't have any answers to these questions of which you think are fundamental to the very uh, the very living the Christian life. Not only the living the Christian life, answering questions for ourselves, but also answering questions to the world around us. Where do we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? What makes man different? We have a sense that there is something special, unique about man. But why is he unique? What makes man unique? Is it because he can do a lot of things? And you have to realize, <laughs> about this time, you see, existentialism is running rampant in Europe. And as existentialism says that uh, uh, existence precedes essence, that in fact, we are what we do. We become what we do. And Schaefer wants to make it very clear. No, that's not right. That's not right at all. We, we do because of what we are. That is, we are, as he would say, noble. Now, I think we get to that a little bit later. So <laughs> I'll leave that. But does that help to understand why that the first three chapters of Genesis are so important to his, uh, his view of inerrancy? Or I should say his view of inerrancy is so important to the first three. And I don't mean to, I don't want to, I'm not picking a fight with anybody here at all. But I would say right now, where do we see some of the, the ongoing controversies within evangelicalism? It is over the first three chapters of Genesis. And I, I, don't, I don't think that Schaefer saw that coming. He just knew fundamentally how important the historicity um, of those first three chapters were. Yeah, like you said, he probably didn't see that coming, but it was prof a prophetic word nonetheless. Yes. Um, yes. Now, shifting again, uh, in a review of a review um, on your blog of uh, the Gospel Coalition did a review on uh, the church at the end of the 20th century. Mm. And in that blog, you write um, that the great evangelical disaster uh, is one of the most important works that Christians should read today, along with true spirituality. What wisdom can Christians glean from the great evangelical disaster today? <laughs> well, <laughs> I would say, um, and I'm working on a manuscript, where I'm making an argument that true spirituality was actually his first book, not first published. But he tells us in 1964, all of his thoughts that are in true spirituality were already formed. Now the book doesn't get published until 1970 something, I think. Uh, and even when you read, when you, if you read, uh, well, you probably can't read that, but when you read the, the uh, lectures that Schaefer does um, at Wheaton, you can see true spirituality already very much prominent in his thinking, uh, and that's in 1965. You can see it so clearly in which he, you know, he's talking at the spiritual emphasis we get at uh, Wheaton. So uh, I think it's, uh, I think the, it, the his book, um, True Spirituality, I, I'm not sure exactly it was when it was printed, but he says in the 1964, that all those ideas were already uh, formed in his head. Now, what to me is so important here is that Schaefer makes a comment somewhere. He says, the real problem facing evangelicals today is not Roman Catholicism or secularism per se. He said, what the real problem is naturalism. He said, it is seeped in to all of the thinking of um, not just the world, but the evangelical world as well. Now, to me, uh, he's making that statement. I forget precisely when, um, but, but I think that's where it's important because I think that's exactly what has happened today. So when we have naturalism that is seeping in in the most innocent of ways, but the most formative ways in the thinking of the evangelical world. Um, without true spirituality, how to 
true, he says, true, true spirituality is the same thing as the Christian life. And if we don't understand the role of the Spirit of God in the life of the Christian, which he said was grounded in understanding the finished work of Christ, if we don't have that, he, uh, he, he points out as early as 1974, that naturalism influences that early had already, um, the, its influences had already infiltrated many evangelical ministries and uh, how they do ministry. And they seem to just seem to be totally devoid, he said, of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he may, now this is so amazing when he's saying this. I can't, you know, it's amazing to me. He said, is it not amazing that though we know the power of the Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust its forms of publicity, its noise, its intimate, its ways of manipulating men. I mean, that's why I think if, if you read the great evangelical disaster, this is the next chapter in the book, so to speak, because we didn't understand the role of the Spirit of God and we were influenced by naturalism. Look where the church, evangelical church, was at uh, in 19, um, 1984. He said, he said, we still, he said, um, we, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust its forms of publicity. I just think by how much that has drained the vitality out of the Christian world. He believed evangelicals. So when he writes in 84, he believes that evangelicals were living in a watershed moment, which he thinks revolved around the view of scripture. Now, if that doesn't get right to the question that you're asking, you can ask another question. <laughs> no, it does. Uh, thank you. Um, I would just say, uh, you touched on it quite a bit in um, saying that these are things are um, that describe the church today, but I wanted to ask you more directly. Yes. Um, what would Schaefer say about evangelicalism today? Well, I, th I think he said it in the great evangelical disaster. And this was a cry, this was a word from a dying man. He writes not to criticize the church. He loves the church. Let's face it, Schaefer gave his life for it. Now, people think, oh, the Brie and all the wonders. Apparently, people have not read the story because the Brie was not an easy road. Um, there was sacrifice, tremendous sacrifice. But Schaefer was not a pragmatist. He didn't believe you did something because it brought about the results you wanted. He believed you did something because you were convicted, convinced of the truth of God's word and this is the way it must be done. I'm not saying he always did that perfectly, but that was from where he started. Um, so when he writes The Great Evangelical Disaster, he is, if you look at all the things that are mentioned in there, they're all key issues that have over, I don't want to say overtaken the evangelical church, but they certainly have become a part of the discussion within the evangelical church, which they would not have been a part of the discussion 40, 50 years ago. We wouldn't be discussing those things because that position would already been staked out and believed this is where we firmly stand. So when you start, as he would say, uh, and he, he, he says that many of Christians, evangelicals, he says, are becoming, uh, having a milder view of inspiration, of inerrancy. And when that happens, and then you have that happening with the influx of naturalism, you can see that's a disastrous recipe for sure, for sure. And so when he writes the great evangelical disaster, th this is a man who is pouring out his heart. He's dying. He's, 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 he's not going to live much longer. He's not very old. Um, the films he made, the writings he did, uh, as I've interviewed people who knew him, who lived there, 
they kept a horrendous schedule. And all for the sake of the gospel. And I think as he's writing this in 1984, dying, it, it, I take it to be um, a true churchman's heart trying to give a word of warning and encouragement, exhortation to the evangelical church. But I see if we stand today, nobody listened. It's just amazing to me that people I talk to, oh, they give high marks to Schaefer, but they don't believe anything he said. They like his vocabulary. They like to sound intellectual by talking about worldviews and all of that. But if they really thought that Schaefer was right in what he said, we'd be, we would be certainly looking, I think, a little bit different. Now, going back to his view of inspiration, um, in The Great Evangelical Disaster, uh, he talks about how it's been watered down, and we're coming up on almost 40 years since that's been written. Um, so in these last 40 years, we've seen the resurg conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention um, and the Lutheran Church, uh, Missouri Synod, and of other um, institutions accepting the Chicago Statement. Um, but in that time period, I have we grown um, in, in certain sectors of evangelicalism, have we uh, protected inerrancy or have we uh, watered down the term like Schaefer warned us about? Well, of course, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I would say, yes, there are still those who hold to what Schaefer would have taught, which the average Christian would have believed in the 1950s. And then, unfortunately, there are many others, particularly ministries that have arisen in what they call the, 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 the uh, cultural engagement. And they became more interested in figuring out how they can attract the, the postmodern or whatever. Now it's the post postmodern. Uh, and rather than just being faithful to the teaching of the text, we started doing things that would make the world feel comfortable in our midst. And that's what everybody was concerned about. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about that our churches are dwindling. But I think they're dwindling because of what we have turned to. When they come to church often, not every church, I want to be clear, but when they come to many churches who would claim to be evangelical, what they really only hear is a baptized version of the world's message. Not much more than that. And again, I, I probably sound, <laughs> I'm not a dying man, so I don't have to sound prophetic, but... <laughs> I would have to say that I've, I've been around. I've, I, I know situations and I'm thinking, this is really sad. And I know people write to me and, and they're saying, you know, I, yeah, this is what's going on in my church. Uh, I don't know why we're doing this. And no, we don't prove anything, you know, by just a story here and a story there. But I do think if you look at some of the books that were written, for example, Look at David Wells. David Wells starts writing, you know, in the 1980s. And look at the, I think David Wells is one with a marvelous message. Uh, he was, uh, by the way, very influenced by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, David Wells, and I, I start looking, Clay, at all the different people, all the books that came out, not just Schaeffer, but people like David Wells, and others, also Guinness, others who wrote, uh, tried to um, prick the, <laughs> the conscience of the evangelical mind and say, wait a minute, we're not going down the right path here. We need to rethink some of these things. And yet that starts in 1980. Look where we are today. You've got all of Schaefer's works and we have others who wrote in, and wrote good 
you know, sound theology, um, warning the church not to go down this path. And yet it seems like so few, particularly in leadership, have taken that seriously to, to direct their ministries, their church, where yeah, <laughs> so many things that go on in the church. Now, I do think, and I have to say this, I, I think that people are probably sincere in what they're doing. I'm not questioning their sincerity at all, but they don't see the implications. And this is one of the things that Francis Schaeffer taught me, to think critically, not just about the item that's before me, but what are the implications? What is it implications would that have for my theology? If I say this, but then I'm doing this, do these things really coalesce or are they somewhat fragmented? Yeah, I think, I think I've, I've wandered from your, from your question. So forgive me. <laughs> no, it's perfectly okay. I, it actually, um, part of what you said when you were just talking about David Wells and Os Guinness um, about their influence and their writings and how they were influenced by the Schaefer's. Um, I think a lot of that, uh, they had their own prophetic word to the church over the years. Um, and that kind of leads into my next question of who are the Francis Schaefer's of today? You know, I, it's a great question and I've thought about it. I've pontificated on it. <laughs> um, I, I, I think there is probably nobody quite like Schaefer. It's simply because Schaefer had such an ability. And I think it has to do with his philosophical background. Uh, he had such ability, an ability to understand the world around him, to, uh, to, you know, he, he once, I'm told he once said that uh, if he had an hour to spend with somebody, he would spend the first 50 minutes asking questions. And I think we've, we've lost that. We don't, we don't think, we're trying to push everybody. We, we need to get the card for salvation signed immediately so we can turn it in at the end of the day and uh, then we can tally up and see who's been the, the greatest evangelist of the hour. But Schaefer was realized that coming to Christ was serious business. That if this is what we're wanting, you need to know what you're getting into. Um, you know, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you better take up your cross. Well, that's not a message we hear very often today. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not sure that there's anybody that's really doing exactly what Schaefer did. Maybe we don't need to, but there are individuals who uh, in particular areas, I think, who are probably doing a good job. And, but they don't have the sort of overall view. If you, you look at the, the issues that Schaefer wrote on, right? Um, you know, you look at the no, con no final conflict, no little people. You look at his work, his, his treatment of uh, ecological issues. I mean, you just think about all these things, all these different areas. And he brought Christianity long before they were being discussed. He understood the issues, for example, in environmental issues. And he is already, not because it's a major problem, but he's thinking about these things. And he realized, if I profess um, Christ is my savior, believe that God is the creator of the universe. Well, what would be the implications of that? That's something I think we probably don't see a lot of, but we do get people who are working in different areas, for which I'm grateful. I don't, I don't have any names I could mention. I just know they're there. Um, but what we don't have is somebody who is kind of bringing unity to all of those things. And showing how they, you know, <laughs> as, uh, as C.S. Lewis in uh, his discarded image, you know, he talks about the medieval uh, worldview and the idea being that uh, a place, uh, every, a place for everything and everything in its place. 
<laughs> we don't have people thinking quite like that today. And I think that was, if I can say it, the genius of Schaefer. He really connected everything. Oh, no, not perfectly. You know, I can say, oh, that wasn't, you didn't quite get that right. But the overall, he was dead on. He was spot on um, when he does uh, How She Would Then Live. Yeah, well, I think that some of the times he gets his, his brush is a little too broad and he maybe doesn't get some of the particulars quite right, according to my understanding. But my, um, I, it, it was, I think he was maybe one of the, first evangelicals, certainly of the 20th century, who even tried to do intellectual history. That had all been given up. That's another thing that I think is so powerful about Schaefer, is his ability to do intellectual history, to trace ideas, and how they created this kind of an environment, and then what happened from there to that, and, and so forth. That's why I think he was so prophetic in a way, because he could see these connections and if, if there was no intervention, the logic of a certain position could be already determined what it's going to be, except there'd be, an, except there'd be some kind of an intervention. When Schaefer is talking about abortion, what is he saying? If this isn't stopped, it will only be a matter of time, but we start talking about euthanasia, resistance to suicide. He just saw the logical conclusion of that kind of thinking. That was... If I must say, that was brilliant. Yeah, there are certainly, like you said, many things that he couldn't have foreseen, but um, the logical conclusion, he saw the, the patterns in which, what, how things were going to turn out. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I wanted to go back to a question that I had missed. Um, the terms he coined, um, mm -hmm. truth and brute facts. Um, what in the world is he talking about there? <laughs> well, let's take um, brute, the, the idea of brute facts first. That is not something that Schaefer coined. That, that was a term, a phrase that was being used. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, he has a, a in his... Um, I think it's an essay, it's called The Practice of Truth. Schaefer writes that Christianity rests upon the truth of what today is called brute facts. By that he's talking about things that actually happen like the empty tomb. And that, that either the, the idea of a brute fact is either it did happen or it didn't happen. There's nothing behind underneath it. Like for example, the empty tomb. Either it did happen or it didn't happen. Schaefer thinks that the loss of the antithesis, or what I would probably call the, the loss of the law of non-contradiction, this was the influence of Hegel. This was the influence that eventually would be of relativism, where you can't say, you know, uh, this is that and this is not. You, you, you get conflated. You, you don't know. It's, well, it could be, it couldn't be, maybe sometime over here, well, it depends upon your perspective, etc. No, a brute fact isn't open to that. And he says for the, the Christian, for Christianity, that it's built on this fact of what did happen. It's either true or it's not true. Either did happen, for example, the empty tomb. Um, it, it's very interesting that when we get to the, when we start having all these uh, well, when we, the supernatural starts going out of the intellectual discussions and people no longer wanting to believe in resurrection. What is really interesting to me, that uh, all of the naturalistic theories for the empty tomb, well, why bother to have naturalistic explanations? You've given up on the supernatural explanation, just leave it at that and just say the tomb wasn't empty. <laughs> but they don't. They go through a whole host of different explanations for the empty tomb. Well, why? Well, because the empty tomb was seen to be a historical fact that you had to count, for, that you had to account for. It's certainly a far cry from what uh, today's society and our age of 
um, your truth and my truth. <laughs> and I could only uh, imagine what Schaefer might say to that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's certainly one of the most interesting parts or uh, sad, I'd say, parts of our society today. Um, now, in close, uh, what m else might, might we say about Schaefer's view of truth or inerrancy um, that might be noteworthy to, to mention? Well, as you know, in that other question that we just talked about, he, you want to know what is true truth. True truth is objective truth, a truth that's independent of the mind, okay? That my mind is not, you know, the idea of the, the postmodern is I don't discover truth, I create it. True truth says, no, that's not right. There is a truth that's independent of the mind. So if we look at Schaeffer's views uh, of inerrancy, well, I think, honestly, it, we, we've pretty much established the importance of it uh, and the wisdom of it. I think there are some other things that, um, that Schaeffer said, you know, he, one of the things he says about inerrancy that, that there's a growing number who are modifying their views on inerrancy. So the full authority of scripture is completely undercut. Um, I think we have to take that seriously. Uh, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, is Schaefer right? Can I admit, take a softer view of inerrancy just so that I can maneuver around in this world and not look so uh, fundamentalist? Can I do that and not suffer something? And I say, yeah, no, you can't do it. And you will suffer something. Why? Well, because we end up, it's, <laughs> inerrancy will die the death of a thousand qualifications. Um, so, oh, well, when we get caught and we're in the corner, <laughs> so to speak, and we find ourselves in confrontation with the culture, we have the Me Too movement. Oh, so how do you speak in the Me Too, Me Too movement, see, and say, well, the Bible teaches that pastors are male. Let's just say that, for example, okay? Well, how are you gonna deal with that? Are you gonna do that? I'm not saying you make it a major, a major speech, but are we committed to some of these things? Or are we not? Uh, if we're not, why are we not? And if we think, well, maybe we just need to redefine what it means to be a pastor. <laughs> I, I thought we all had a pretty good idea. And the question is, well, why would we be asking that question? Is it because we've come upon something in the text that demands of us to rethink it? Or is it we're simply trying to accommodate to the world at large? Schaefer would say, accommodation, accommodation. That's what it is. It's a combination. It's the worst. He said it's the worst kind of worldliness there is. We accommodate. So I, I think that that. Um, I think there are several other things that we can say about Schaefer if you want to take the time, but and I think this is really important because you know Schaefer says at one point um, that truth requires confrontation. So if, if we're going to have to confront some of these things, even within our own circles, Schaefer has such a, a superior word for us today. He said, you know, if we stress love of God without holiness of God, it turns out to be compromised. But if we stress the holiness of God without love, we practice something, he says, that is hard and it lacks beauty. Schaefer wants to say, and he went through these debates, did he not? He went through these controversies. And Schaefer said that the two marks of the Christian uh, are uh, truth and holiness. And if we're, going to, if we're going to get into a confrontation, now I speak of confrontation within the evangelical community first, we, we have to go about this with love um, as well as conviction. 
that yes, I have to do this, but I have no right to attack another believer as if he or she is not a believer. He says somewhere, beware of, beware of habits learned in controversy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good, you know, when we're in controversy with the unsaved, his concern was that the very things we do to the unsaved, we end up doing them within the community of faith. Well, he would say you shouldn't have done it the other way, shouldn't have done it to the unbeliever as well. But I think that's an important thing for us to remember uh, from, from Schaefer, is that how do we, how will we engage other people that, with whom we differ? And maybe differ quite strongly. Can we do that in a spirit of godliness? Can we do it without, without assassinating the character, without name calling, without trying to, you know, use certain terms to categorize them as bad people or not spiritual, or, you know, carnal Christians, whatever you want to say. But that we can stand face to face as as gentlemen in in Christ and say, let's think about this. Let's sit down and work our way through this. Why are we at odds on this issue? Look at it historically, contextually, theologically, whatever, but maintain that spirit. Um, uh, something is very interesting. When Schaefer left the Presbyterian Mission Board, you know, he did that in 1995, same year they started Labrie. When he did that, he had absolutely no guarantee of any support at all. And here he is up in the Alps. <laughs> Not, he didn't have Facebook. He didn't have social media to type on. Oh, I'm being attacked. And there's a lady who writes to him. Uh, and, and he grants that she's writing out of interest and concern. But she wants him to say more about his leaving the Presbyterian mission. And he said, I've said all that needs to be said. I don't need to say anymore. I, I just find that marvelous. He he never he never tried to defend himself. He said what needed to be said and just then got on with the work. I think that's a profound word uh, to us today. If if uh, if we're right, and I'm, I'm not the only one speaking this, of course, but if there are those who are saying, "Gosh, the church, evangelical church, sincere, yes, but you know the world is coming into your." into your church the back door by not by theology per se but by the things you were doing everything everything that comes from the world has a worldview attached to it and that worldview is not the same as the church or the christian worldview so i think that's a very important uh, part of our understanding Schaefer. I think it's a very important part of Schaefer. I remember. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just remember that I saw, I saw, I, I, report, I tell this story so many times I embarrassed myself. But I saw Schaefer, only time I saw him in person, 1984, about a month before he died. He was living on milkshakes. He had given, just given a speech that was based upon his book, uh, The Great Evangelical Disaster. And there had been a promo film that had, done, had been associated with it, which I never saw. Well, I saw parts of it, but I never combined it. And after he had spoken, and he, he's kind of laying out what he says in you know, The Great Evangelical Disaster. And a young lad, it's a large congregation, a large auditorium, and a young lad stands up, goes to one of the mics, and he says, Dr. Schaefer, it seems to me, he said, that the church is in the 10th round, bloody and beaten, on its knees. Is there any hope it can win? I can see Dr. Schaefer now sitting in the chair because he couldn't stand. That white on uh, that green sport coat. He pulls the mic to his, face, to his mouth and he says, son, if we do it to win, we've lost already. We do not do it to win. We do it because our risen Lord has commanded us. That has stayed with me since 1984. Why do I do what I do? Because my risen Lord has commanded. Great word, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, that's, that's a great word to end on.
Uh, amen. Um, Bruce, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk about Schaefer and inerrancy. It's been an honor. Well, I'm certainly grateful for the opportunity. And I probably just rambled on and, and uh, got off course and all the rest of it. So if I did, my apologies. <laughs> not, not at all. It was great anecdotes and, and great conversation. So no, no apology necessary. <laughs>